All right. So, we are in our second week of a new series called Uproot. I'm hooked. I'm hooked here. Give me a second. Mask struggles, you know what I'm saying? So, we're in our second week of a series called Uproot. And in this series, Uproot, um, we are going to be looking at five case studies. Five case studies in the Bible of people who kept sin secret. And in doing so, by keeping their sin a secret, by allowing it to fester under the surface, by allowing it to stay like a cancer, undiagnosed, unrepented, they suffered tremendous consequences for it. Last week, we looked at the story of Achan. Today, we're going to look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And then we're going to look at the stories of Judas, uh, King Jehu, and King David. Uh, Jehu? Well, don't worry, I'm going to tell you. Uh, if you missed last week's sermon, I encourage you to go back in uh, the podcast or on Facebook and listen to that sermon, okay? But I want you to know that this sermon series is kind of like the Marvel movies, okay? The Marvel movies make more sense if you watch all of them, but at any time you like, you can jump right in, start watching one, and, uh, and watch a handsome hero fight for good. That would be me. Okay. So no one's going to laugh at that. All right, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Okay, Acts chapter 5. As you do uh, turn to Acts chapter 5, I'd like to tell you about a staged political photo op. Now, we are all very familiar with the power that photo and video possess, right? A visual is a very powerful thing. As the statement goes, a picture says a thousand words, right? Seeing is believing. So that being the case, it is not a surprise that people have figured out how to manipulate that power for their behalf, okay? How many times, for example, if you've ever gone house hunting or apartment hunting, how many times have you ever gone to a house and found that it did not live up to the pictures, Right? You walk in and you immediately realize that the realtor has hired a professional photographer and that photographer has used really good camera angles and really good lighting to make a room look huge. But then you walk in it and you look around and you're like, is this even the same house? Any, anybody ever been there? I know I have. Or perhaps you have experienced that with a person. Right? Maybe, maybe you see someone's profile on a dating app, and you're impressed, and you swipe right. You decide to meet that person in person, and as you go and meet them, you're looking around trying to find them, and you realize that the person in front of you is them, and you're like, you look nothing like the photo. You know, they've, they've strategically placed the camera uh, strategically done the lighting, strategically done the filters to make themselves look like Justin Timberlake when in real life they look more like Post Malone. And you're like, what's going on here? But perhaps nowhere are photographs staged more frequently than in the world of politics. 
Okay, in politics, at, at staged events, photographers are purposely placed in one particular location in the venue so that they will only have one angle in their photos, the curated best angle, right? There's always going to be a large American flag somewhere in the background, Smaller American flags dotted throughout the rest of the scene, probably one on the lapel of the politician. There's definitely going to be a diverse group of supporters behind them that demonstrate a wide range of support. They're all going to be holding predetermined signs that speak to particular things that the candidate supports. Uh, someone is definitely going to hand the politician a baby at some point, and that politician is going to act like it's the greatest thing that they've ever seen, and they're going to kiss the baby. At some point, they're going to point in the crowd somewhere to their good friend, who is definitely a working class citizen of a different race. Maybe they'll hold up a Bible in front of a church, something like that. Who knows? We've all seen it. One particular example comes from the 2012 presidential campaign. Okay, and in 2012, at the time, Mitt Romney was running for president, and his running mate was Representative Paul Ryan. Okay, and so a photo was taken of Paul Ryan at a soup kitchen washing dishes. I was going to put it up on the screen, and I'm going to be real with you. I forgot. So... Imagine, in your mind, Paul Ryan washing dishes. If you don't know what Paul Ryan looks like, use your imagination, okay? Think of someone who sounds like a Paul Ryan. Obviously very white, middle class, normal dude, okay? Imagine that guy washing dishes, wearing an apron. And this photo was uh, put online by the Washington Post. And the caption on this photo describes Ryan having greeted and thanked a handful of volunteers from St. Michael's Catholic Church at the St. Vincent de Paul Society Soup Kitchen. Every Saturday, this, this caption explains, every Saturday from 10 to 11.30, there is a breakfast for the homeless. And on this particular day, Ryan, his wife, and their children volunteered to do the dishes. So as the cameras clicked, as the cameras shot video footage, Ryan began to describe how when he was younger, he used to spend his summers washing dishes. So Ryan and his family, you know, donned in their white aprons, are smiling wide and working on the pots and pans with great joy. It was the perfect photo op. That is, until the director of the soup kitchen spoke to reporters a short time afterward. And he expressed frustration that Paul Ryan had essentially coerced his way into the soup kitchen that day by glad-handing a volunteer who let him in when he wasn't supposed to be coming in. Uh, the guy's name is Brian Antall. He's the, the director of this ministry, or was at the time. And he stated that Ryan arrived very conveniently after all the homeless people had, had already left. Okay, so the, the breakfast is already over. And the entire kitchen and all the dishes had already been cleaned by the volunteer staff. Okay, 
So when he showed up with his family, they literally just took clean pans, put some suds on them, and pretended to wash them while the cameras rolled. This guy, Antal, further stated that the Ryans did not have permission to be there and that they essentially ramrodded their way into the kitchen. He, he explained that private donations funded this ministry and that their bylaws prohibited the use of this facility for political purposes. So he said this, the photo op they did wasn't even accurate. He did nothing. He just came in here to get his picture taken at the dining hall. Had they asked for permission, it wouldn't have been granted. I certainly wouldn't have let him wash clean pans and then take a picture. So, as it turns out, this picture, staged, told a thousand words that weren't true. Now, after that, one of the emerging questions then became, did the press coverage actually lie? about this. You see, because the caption of the picture, quote, Paul Ryan washes dishes at a soup kitchen outside of Youngstown, Ohio, is technically true, right? He did wash dishes at a soup kitchen. They just didn't mention that the dishes were already cleaned, right? The article described events that take place at this soup kitchen, like a breakfast for the homeless every Saturday. But the article didn't actually claim that Ryan was there when the events took place, okay? So readers are just kind of left to fill in the blanks with their imagination. And so everything was carefully crafted to tell a story without actually telling the story, without actually putting the details in writing. So that nothing untrue was stated and none of the pictures were technically inaccurate and Paul Ryan could still claim that he had permission to be there because a volunteer let him in. The story just didn't include relevant details like the workers have already done everything and they're waiting to lock up for these people to just leave. So they take their photo op. But what did the public think? The public thought, well, Paul Ryan's family volunteered at a local soup kitchen for a homeless breakfast. The power of a staged photo. Now, as you know, Romney and Ryan did not win the election. Okay? Paul Ryan is now retired and still, to this day, maintains that his family had permission to be there. The truth is, he wanted to look like he was a servant without actually being one. He wanted to appear in the public eye as someone who was giving of his time to the underprivileged. He wanted everyone to see and think about how selfless he was. And as I'm replaying this in my own imagination, I don't know if you guys are like this, but this is how I am. I'm imagining what the conversation was like with his family on the, uh, on the way there in, in the car, okay? I'm a husband and a father, so the way that this conversation must have gone would be something like, all right, kids, um, we're going to go to an empty soup kitchen, 
and we're going to pretend like we're volunteering. Don't worry. We don't actually have to do any real work. Just play along. We're going to take a few pictures. We're going to soap up a few pans. We're going to laugh and joke, and everything's going to be done in a few minutes. I'll take you to McDonald's afterwards, okay? And the kids are like, okay, Dad. And on went the show. Now, as you can imagine, Paul Ryan was very rightly excoriated after the details emerged of this ruse. But that, of course, wouldn't be the last time that we would see a staged political photo op. It happens all the time. Today, we're going to look at a story in Scripture that seems a lot like this staged photo op. A couple named Ananias and Sapphira, wanting everyone to know how generous and kind they are, pretend to make a large donation to the church while everyone is watching. They then pose for a first century camera, which is probably like a clay jar and some, some uh, charcoal or something. And they smile, and they drop a coin purse in front of Peter. And everything seems fine. But their ruse is going to be uncovered. And they pay the price. And as they do, what they're going to teach us are some very important lessons about secret sin that must be uprooted. So... Hopefully by now you are in Acts chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there are some on the table in the back for you to take. And uh, the words will be on the screen behind me. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it. And laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I 
I saw one commentary describing the events of this particular day as a seeker-unfriendly service. This is the kind of thing that will scare a lot of folks off, right? This is not seeker-friendly at all. Ananias and Sapphira come in. They make an offering. Peter calls them out to their face, and one after another, they drop dead, and their bodies are carried out. What on earth is going on here? I think before we get into the details of Ananias and Sapphira, it's important for us to place this story in context. It's important for us to know what is happening before and after this passage, where this is couched. So directly before, in verses 32 through 36, it describes for us how the early church was functioning as a unit. It says, The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So all of the the church together is helping each other out. Everyone is saying, look, whatever I have belongs to everybody else. Yours, mine, and ours. If you have a need, we'll put our stuff together and, and we'll meet those needs. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And a great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy, a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So these people are literally selling their stuff to give to anybody who had need. Now, it doesn't say all of their stuff. It says that these people who were well off were, were essentially selling off some of their extra to take care of the people who didn't have any, okay? One of them, it gives an example in verse 36, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this happens right before Ananias and Sapphira. So after describing what the early church was doing, how they were functioning all together, it gives this example of Barnabas who sold a field and then brought the money that he made and he laid it at the apostles' feet. And as you can imagine, when this happened, there was great joy, right? There was adulation. Everyone was probably very, very appreciative. Whoever was in need was probably like, oh my God, Barnabas, thank you so much. Thank you. You have met my need by selling your field. And watching all of this happen is Ananias and Sapphira. They see all that happens with Barnabas and they're like, hey, we have that extra field that we're not using, right? The one over there? Hey, why don't we do that too? Why don't we sell the field and and come in here and and drop a bag in front of Peter's feet? But not the whole bag, because we're going to keep part of it for ourselves. We're going to keep the credit, uh, uh, the money, but but we're going to get the credit. Now after this, it says, after Ananias and Sapphira, it says, Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on the cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were healed. 
So there's this mighty movement of God. People are coming to know the Lord. The sick are being healed. Needs are being met. At the same time, it has this hilarious verse in, in, in verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Those who weren't that interested were like, yeah, we're, we're going to respect you, but from a distance. Because I don't want to walk in and die. All right? Because that's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. So the church, verse 32 tells us, was of one heart and one soul, okay? The mission of the gospel was more important to them than whatever they possessed. The people were more important than the things, as we try to teach our own children. So to further the mission of reaching more people, they were selling their stuff. The needs being met. No one is needy now because of of collective sharing. One in spirit, sick, cared for, men and women being treated equally, which in the first century was unheard of, okay? No one is being denied access to the gospel. The gospel mission is preeminent. Enter Ananias and Sapphira. They did not have the same spirit as the rest of the church. To them, the mission was not the most important thing. To them, the most important thing was for the church to believe them to be righteous. They wanted to be seen as sacrificial. They wanted to be viewed as heroes. They wanted people to pat them on the back and be like, wow, Ananias, wow, Sapphira, you guys are so generous. You guys are so giving. Thank you for coming to this soup kitchen and washing these already clean dishes, guys. Click, 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 click. So, in view of that, they pretend to make this huge sacrifice. And right away, Peter sees right through them. Now, it's important to clarify here. They are not being punished because they didn't bring the full proceeds of their sale, okay? They are being punished because they intentionally tried to deceive the body into believing that they were, all right? Let me say that again. They are not being punished because they didn't bring the whole proceeds. They're being punished for their deception for trying to make everybody believe that they were making a greater sacrifice than what they actually were, Because Peter flat out says to Ananias, didn't you have the freedom to do with this whatever you wanted? Peter says, uh, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, Peter is saying, dude, listen, if you sold the field for 10 grand and you walked in here and you said, hey, I want to donate $1,000 to just help everybody out. I've sold some stuff, and here's 10% of it. I'd like to give this to the church um, to, to do whatever you guys want with. The response would have been, wow, thanks, dude. That's awesome. And everything would have been fine. Instead, you came in here acting like you're some kind of a hero, and you tried to tell us, I sold this field for 10K. Here it all is. And that... Is a lie. So, as we will keep talking about, Ananias and Sapphira are guilty 
of being hypocrites. They're guilty of being liars. And as we'll see here, guilty of being thieves. And there's a couple of things, at least, that they teach us. So if you're taking notes, here's point number one. Secret sins turn righteous acts into empty displays. Secret sins turn righteous acts into empty displays. They take something that could have been good and poison it. A secret sin takes something that otherwise would have or could have been righteous and it ruins it from the inside out. So you might say that there are two sides to secret sin. The hidden evil and the public pretending. The two sides of secret sin are the hidden evil and the public pretending. So let's, let's break down each of, of, of those things. What, what is the hidden evil in this passage? And what is the public pretending? Verse 2 tells us the hidden evil. It says, With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So the key word in the Greek, it's two words here in English, the key phrase in our English is the phrase kept back, where it says that he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Now, something that's incredibly interesting about the Greek word that is used here in verse 2 for kept back. It is the Greek word nosphizo. And that word means to misappropriate something for oneself when that belongs to someone else. So take embezzling, for example. Embezzling would be keeping back in this sense. Uh, it, it would be misappropriating something for yourself when it belongs to something else. And so Ananias and Sapphira here keep back or embezzle or misappropriate something that belongs to God. Now, here is what is so interesting about this word. This word, nosphizo, is only used one time in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So, the Old Testament is translated into Greek. And this word is used one time in the Old Testament. Do you know where? I'll tell you, since you asked. Joshua 7.1. Joshua 7.1 reads, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things, kept back some of the things, nosphizo some of the things, under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the son, sons of Israel. So the very same word that's used here of Ananias and Sapphira of their action was used one time in the Old Testament to describe the actions of Achan, who we talked about last week. So what does that tell us? Their sin was the same as Achan's. 
they took things that were devoted to the Lord. Okay, Achan took money that was devoted to the treasury of the Lord. And in Achan's case, it was God who commanded, that money is mine. Okay, don't steal that for yourself. You put that in the treasury. That money is devoted to me. It was a command coming from above. Achan, all you guys, this, this money is devoted to the treasury of the Lord. Do not take it. In Ananias and Sapphira's case, they themselves devoted this money to the treasury of the Lord. They were the ones who made what scripture would call elsewhere a rash vow. They said, we are devoting this to the Lord. Ananias and Sapphira publicly said, the entire sale, the entire proceeds are devoted to the Lord. But then they took a portion of that and hid it in their tent, just like Achan. And just like Achan, they are judged for their sin. Now, that's not the only parallel in this story. Notice as well, another parallel is God's offer of repentance. Last week, one of the things that that I wanted to emphasize clearly was that when you come to God with secret sin, when you are willing to uproot the things that have stayed hidden, God doesn't meet you with condemnation. God doesn't meet you with a fist. God meets you with open arms. He, He meets you with an invitation of grace and kindness. God is waiting for us to respond to his grace with surrender. He gave that first to Achan. God offered Achan a chance to repent before judgment was handed down. In the words of Joshua speaking to the people, consecrate yourselves, was an invitation, come forward and repent. And Achan, as we talked about last week, could have been spared, but he didn't. Here in Acts, we find Sapphira being given the exact same chance, okay? Ananias has met his fate. Now, that's not to say that he couldn't have repented. He could have, but it's clearly and explicitly written out for us with Sapphira, okay? Peter asks her flat out, okay? So Ananias dies. The the guys walk him out. They, They bury him in a field, They probably dug a very shallow grave. Okay, this is a three-hour service. Nobody in his family is there. His wife doesn't even know. Okay, they dragged him out, and that was it. Sapphira comes in three hours later, not knowing what happened, it says in verse 7. And Peter gives her an out. He gives her a chance. He says to her, tell me, whether you sold the land for so much. There it is. It's a chance to come clean. Peter says, hey, listen. Um, did you really sell the land for, for, for 10K? Is that, is that really what you did? And her response is, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's what we did. Now, if she would have come clean here, if she would have repented, she would have lived. She would have been forgiven. She she would have been given grace. But instead, just like her husband, she persists in the lie. And so just like Achan's story, in this story, the whole family is judged. So we have a hidden evil. But we also have a public pretending. 
In the hidden evil, there is also a public pretending. And that is to give this image of what they paid. Verse 4, Peter says, Ananias, you could have told us very clearly what you made from this, and it would have been no big deal. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So he's saying, you walked in here, and you lied. Okay, that's public pretending. Then, uh, then Sapphira does the very same thing in verse 8. When Peter gives her an out and says, hey, did you sell it for this much? She said in front of everybody, yes, we did. We sold it for this much and we brought it in and here it all is. Aren't you happy? She's waiting for the applause, right? She's waiting for the pat on the back. She's waiting for people to be like, oh, Sapphira, seriously, you guys are so great. But that doesn't happen. They are guilty of being hypocrites. The, the Greek word for hypocrite is a theater term. And it, it, it describes to put on a mask. It is to be something that you are not. To display to others an image that is not true. They are play acting. They're saying, this is who I am, but it isn't really. It is a false representation of reality. It is public pretending. And so, this secret sin turns what could have been a righteous act into a public, empty display of false righteousness. Because again, let me just reemphasize here, they were under no requirement whatsoever to give anything or to give everything, okay? These were free gifts. The apostles are not uh, commanding that everyone do this, okay? There, there There is no socialism going on here where from the top down, the leadership says, all right, everybody, sell whatever you got. We're gonna put it all in a pot and we're all gonna be good. No, this was free will offerings that were being made by these members of the early church. So they were under no compulsion whatsoever to give anything or to give everything. They themselves made a rash vow in front of God and all the witnesses. They put on this mask to pretend to be something that they were not. And here's what we need to realize. God always sees through the mask. He always does. God always sees through the mask. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in in just a few moments. But here's an opportunity for us to ask the question, what does this mean for me right now? What does this mean for me today? In the context of what we're talking about, secret sin, what does it mean for me right now? What do I learn from this? One of the things that we need to ask ourselves is whether or not we are guilty in any way, big or small, of lying to God. When we come to church, not not just lying to others, but lying to God. We have to examine ourselves to see if there are any ways in which we are guilty of publicly pretending. 
Let me give you just a, a, a very small example, okay? One that every single one of us are guilty of, okay? Have you ever today sang a worship song and you didn't mean what you were saying, right? Have you ever sang words like, I surrender all, but you're not really surrendering all. You're singing in church because that's what you're supposed to do. And, and I realize that in, in, in one sense, there are times in which we need to remind ourselves, this is what I need to do. We need to remind, we're, we're coaching ourselves at times. Okay, I need to direct my heart in this way. Okay, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, I'm going to say this because I'm supposed to say this, but I don't really mean this. Have you ever come to church knowing there is unrepentant sin in your life, knowing that there is something that you're hiding, and you pray and you sing and you listen to the sermon and you act like everything is good between you and God when you know that it's not? Have you ever had unrepentant sin in your life and then got up on stage and preached a message to a congregation saying, give it all to Jesus, it's worth it. Oh, that, that one was just me, sorry. We gotta, we gotta examine whether there are times that we come in and we put on a mask. We try to be something that we're not. And, and, and let me tell you, this goes beyond just hiding sins, okay? I'm not just talking about sinful things in our lives that we're struggling with. I'm talking about any kind of struggle, any kind of thing that we're facing, any kind of challenge that's in our lives. Because here's the thing, we come in here and we want others to think that we are something that we're not, which is perfectly put together. Okay, well, maybe not perfect, of course, because we all admit no one is perfect, right? I have little struggles like everybody else. You know, sometimes I say an unkind word. Sometimes I have a bad attitude. Sometimes I act selfishly. But you know, nothing major. We don't want anybody to see who we really are on the inside. The last thing we want is to be fully known. To be fully exposed. To be fully revealed. We don't want anybody thinking that we're some kind of a freak. Some kind of a, 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 a loser. We don't, we don't want anyone to know if, if our minds are controlled by lust. We don't want anyone to know if our, if our minds are controlled by fear. We don't, we don't want anyone to know if, if my heart is filled with rage. We don't want anybody to know about our crippling anxiety. We don't want anybody to know about our failures as a spouse or, or, or our failures a, a, as a parent. We don't want anybody to know about our internet history. We, we don't want them to know about the debilitating doubts. We can't let them know about these, these questions about God, these things that we wrestle with every day that, that plague us. We don't want anybody to know about the screaming match that we had with our wife on our way to church that day. We just walk in and be like, well, we're better than we deserve. Hashtag blessed. So we come in, we smile, we, we talk about God's love, we, we talk about how tired we all of the coronavirus, and everything is fine. But we sure don't tell anybody about crying ourselves to sleep last night. 
Instead, what if, what if we were a church full of genuine people, willing to love one another at our best and at our worst? Now, like I said last week, I'm, I'm not saying that that means we get up here and we take turns telling the entire body about all of our secret sins. But maybe there are times when someone asks how we're doing, we admit, you know, it's been a rough week. <laughs> and there are some things that I need prayer for. And I, I don't want to get into all of it right now at this very moment, but why don't we meet for coffee sometime this week? I'll tell you the whole story. And, and what if on the other side, we were willing to be the person to go, yeah, you know what? I'll go with you. Because tell me if this is true, okay? Tell me if this I don't think this is just me. The phrase, how are you doing, is void of any meaning today, okay? It is literally something you say in passing. It is intended to be a connective question, right? It's intended to be a question that brings conversation. Instead, it is literally something that you say in Walmart to someone as you pass in the aisle. Okay, you don't know this person at all. You've never seen them, nor will you ever see them again. What do you say? How you doing? Right? That's not just me. That's all over the place. And it's become so ingrained in us that that's what we do in church. We come in, we go, how you doing? And we're not even interested in what the person says and... And if, if the other person actually answers the question, we are so caught off guard by that. Well, I wasn't expecting you to tell me how you were doing, <laughs> right? How are you doing? And someone goes, well, let me tell you. We go, wait, what? Why are you going to tell me? Because you asked, right? It's become empty. But what if we were a church that came in here and we genuinely asked, how are you doing? And then we listen for the answer to the question. And we're willing to be the friend to hear how you are actually doing. And what if we did this with our sins? What if we did this with the things that we've hidden so deeply in our hearts? What if instead of continuing to try to hide that secret sin in your tent? What if you approached one person and you said... I really need to talk to somebody. Can I trust you? Can, can we sit down? Can, can you walk with me through something? I gotta get this off my chest. What if we truly bore one another's burdens? What if we were like verse 32 that says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul? Can you imagine what would happen? Can you imagine what kind of a community we would have here? Can you imagine what kind of family that would build in this place? I don't want to just imagine it. I think that's what God is calling us to. I think God is calling this church community to be genuine and authentic like that. And I want you to consider right now if you are willing to be a part of that. If you are willing to participate in that kind of genuine authenticity. And if you're not, I don't blame you, okay? And I'm not saying leave, all right? Let me make that clear. I don't want anybody to be like, well, you want me to be honest? No, I don't want to do that. So deuces, I'm out. 
if that's not where you're at, okay. But there's going to be some of us that are going to start that. And anytime you're ready, you're welcome to join in and be authentic with us, okay? Point number two. Sin fools us into believing that because others can't see, God can't see either. Sin fools us into believing that because others can't see, other people can't see, then neither can God. This again is a parallel that we find with Ananias and Sapphira and Achan. Same thing in both stories. In Achan's case, he took some of those devoted things that God commanded not to take. And he hid them in his tent. And for a while, nobody knew about it. Okay, everyone together celebrated the victory over Jericho. They all partied. They all had the after party once the battle was over. They went to bed. They got up. They prepared for the battle to, uh, to send men up to Ai. For at least a short time, nobody knew. And Achan skated under the radar thinking, I got away with it. Man. Nobody knows. This is awesome. I've got all this silver and gold and this dope fit in my tent. And I get away with it. But then he's found out. Same thing with Ananias and Sapphira. They plotted together. It says very clearly um, that, that Ananias did this with his wife's knowledge. And then Peter says to her, how is it that you have agreed together to do this? So Ananias and Sapphira premeditated. They said, hey, here's the plan, babe. Let's sell the field. (laughs) This is going to be a great idea. Let's sell the field. Then let's keep some of it. But we're going to bring some of it. (laughs) Suckers will never know. Great idea. Let's do that. All right. Proceed. And so they walk into it thinking there's no way anyone is ever going to figure this out. There's no way anyone is going to find out about this. And what they neglected is that God is always watching. Okay, just like I alluded to a few moments ago, whatever mask we put on, God always sees through the mask. Always, always. And, and, And here's the thing. When we think about this rationally, when when we really sit down and, and we're honest with ourselves, isn't it asinine to think, I can get away with this. God will never know. Isn't that the dumbest thing that we could possibly think ever? It's true that we might be able to do something that nobody around us is going to find out about, okay? It is true that we may be able to do something and no person connected to us is going to notice. But how dumb are we to think that there is anywhere that we can hide from the presence of God? Think about how, think about how silly this is, okay? God commands the, the children of Israel... Do not take any of the silver and gold. Do not take any of the devoted things. Achan disobeys that. And and, and Joshua chapter 7 says that he took it to his tent and he buried it. And he put dirt over it 
and it's under, you know, a blanket, okay? Put yourself in Achan's shoes. Think the thought. (laughs) God will never find it in this tent. Is that not idiotic? It's completely insane. Ananias and Sapphira say together, hey, let's sell this field. Those guys will never know. We'll put the money in the bank. God can't see what's in our bank. What? We laugh, right? Because it's funny. But isn't that exactly what we do? Isn't that exactly what we're guilty of? Every time we sin and we think that we're doing it in secret, aren't we doing an equally asinine, idiotic, laughable thing? Thinking that God doesn't see it? Thinking that God doesn't know? That's dumb. We together are dumb. We are stupid people. Let's just be honest. I am guilty of this probably more than anyone here. We think that we can do something in secret and God doesn't know. And Peter points at Ananias and Sapphira in their face and he says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? He says, you're not lying to us. And Ananias, you're, you're not lying to the people, okay? He says, you're, you're lying to God. You have not lied to man, but lied to God. God always sees. So, at bottom, here's what we need to understand. Nothing is done in secret. Ever. Nothing is done in secret. It may be done in secret from other people, but it's never a secret to God. The truth is, secret sins are never actually secret sins. Secret sins are never actually secret. Secret sins are never actually secret. Secret sins are never actually secret. And so Peter's message to the people there that are watching this ordeal is very clear. God sees everything that you do. And and that's not a manipulation technique, all right? This is is not a guy just trying to, to manipulate anyone. This is not Peter pointing his finger at everyone and saying, pay up or else. That's, That's not what's happening. The lesson that everyone learned there today was obvious. You cannot lie to God. You cannot lie to God. So live honestly before him. Now, I want to be very clear with you here, okay? I am not Peter, okay? I do not have the same anointing that the Holy Spirit gave to Peter in this moment, okay? I am certainly not the Holy Spirit himself. I can't ever look at you And know exactly what's going on in your heart. Okay, when you come into this church and you say, ah, I'm fine. I can never look at you and be like, you're not fine. I know you aren't. This is what you've done. It's never going to happen, all right? Let me just 
you're okay. okay I, I can't do that. But here's what you need to know. God knows. Whether you've admitted it or not, whether you've uprooted it or not, God already knows. And I'm not saying that as a scare tactic. I'm saying that because I want you to have the chance to be set free. I'm saying it because I want you to have the same chance of freedom that was given to Achan, that was given to Ananias, that was given to Sapphira before it was too late. I'm saying it because I want you to not go further in this. I, 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 I want you to have the chance to not hurt yourself. I want you to have the chance to not be bogged down by the weight of sin. I want you to have the chance of knowing what it is like to be free indeed because the Son has set you free. Because I can tell you from personal experience that freedom from sin is so much better than bondage to it. Living in a way that you are completely transparent is so much better than being a hypocrite, wearing a mask, pretending to be something that you're not. And so now is the chance to repent. Now is the chance to make what is unseen seen. Now is the chance to uproot Now is the time to be delivered. Will you go to the Lord and to the church in a tangible way with a real person and say, I'm ready. I need to uproot this. I need to give this to Jesus. Maybe you're somebody who has never given your life to Christ before. Maybe you have never surrendered. Maybe you have come to church and just play acted the entire time that you've been here. Maybe you have said that you're a Christian. Maybe you've said, I'm a believer, and you're actually not. Maybe you've never surrendered. Maybe you're coming in here, you're like, I don't believe any of this crap. Honestly, that's where I'm at. Okay, I love you still. Thank you for coming. But are you ready to come to the Lord? Are you ready to lay down the things that are hindering you? Are you ready to lay down the things that have rooted themselves so deep in your heart to fill it with darkness? I want you to know that there is a church community here to receive you, to receive that honesty, to receive that surrender, to help walk you through those things. Not perfectly, because let me promise you, we're a bunch of screw-ups too. But let's walk. Let's do it. Let's go on this journey. Let's let the Lord uproot sin once and for all. Let's pray.